We thank you for the opportunity to be together again this morning. Thank you for these men who make the sacrifice to get up early and uh, to be here. We pray, Lord, today that um, we would be men who would um, have hearts eager to draw near to your word. Uh, We desire our inner man, who we are at the core, where you come and meet us as either judge or savior. We want at that place, at who we are there, to draw near to your word so that we might see you, so that we might understand um, more uh, more of who you are, grasp more clearly what you have done for us in your son Jesus Christ, and that we might understand our condition apart from you, and that we might understand our condition better because of you and in Christ. Um, Lord, we are in need of you. We are weak and frail creatures, um, weak and frail men uh, who need to depend upon your great might to keep us, to make us more holy. And we pray that everything we do today would help us to advance in holiness of life before you so that we can live a life that is pleasing to you. Thank you for this day. Thank you for this time together. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Scott, why don't you... So uh, my team is a rebuilding project, and we are... In the same place, we are a rebuilding project as well. Um, the difference is probably the outcome. Um, we have a guarantee that God is going to bring us exactly to the place that he wants us to be um, when we abide with him and we walk with him. So if you have your notebooks with you, turn them over and look at the back side of your notebook, and we will be going through our build disciplines. Again, we're going to do this every week that we meet together. We're going to remind ourselves of how important it is to consider the disciplines. And again, the disciplines are our heart and our home and our ministry and the deacon qualifications and then training, the hermeneutic, and the vision of our church. And what I want to focus on this morning is is how our time with the Lord, exposing our heart to his word, should take us into the rest of our areas of our life how the shepherding of our heart takes us into our home and takes us into our ministry and takes us into our study of God's word and takes us into participation at this church and all of those things in a way that's biblical and good. And so we, we know that, that a man needs to shepherd his heart with God's word. What we mean by that is having meaningful interaction with God when we open his word and when we close our eyes in prayer. When we come before God, it, it, is, it is so important that we, we expose ourselves to who God is and we remind ourselves of who it is that we're meeting with. We remind ourselves of what the Word is. It's God's communication of himself to us, his explanation of us, ourselves. And when we do that, that is when we begin to have meaningful interaction with God and his Word. We see his might and his power. We see his faithfulness to us, his mercy and his kindness to us. And when we remind ourselves of all of those things as we meet with him, that is when we we actually begin to shepherd our hearts. And so that is what we want to start with. Um, But the shepherding of our hearts is not constrained to the time that we have God's word open in front of us and when we're actually praying in our time alone with him in the morning or in the evening. The shepherding of our hearts continues throughout our day. Um, When you read in James, we read that, that a man who looks at himself in the mirror and then goes away and forgets what he looks like is is a man who has lost sight of of who he really is. 
And we need to be the kind of man who, when we spend time with God in his word in the morning, we, we carry that with us. We carry an understanding of who God is and what he has done for us into the rest of our day. For us guys, a lot of it, it means getting up and going to work and, and carrying that with us into our workplace. Um, we know it means carrying that with us into our home because all of us live someplace. And whether we're a single guy and we live alone or we're a single guy and we live with roommates or we're married and we live with our wife or we're married and we live with our wife and our kids, um, it is incumbent on us to take what God has shown us about himself and his word into those places. And we need to bear that in mind as we have ourselves, we find ourselves in conversation with our wives, with our kids, with our roommates, with guys that we have over, with people in small group. So the first place we take the shepherding of our heart is into our homes, and we, we continue to shepherd our heart as we're in our homes, whether it's with roommates or wives or kids. If you're a grandparent, it's with grandchildren. You still need to shepherd your heart when you've got your little grandchild with you because they're listening and they see and they're observing. And when you're the man who has shepherded his heart and he's he's operating well in his home, in his relationships, that is when the Lord makes you a qualified man for ministry in a local body of believers like this. And the man who shepherds his heart personally and then he shepherds his heart in his home, he needs to continue to shepherd his heart in his ministry, whether he's he's holding the babies in the nursery or he's exercising mercy and kindness and patience with the, the six-year-olds and the seven-year-olds on Sunday morning, or, or whether he's stacking chairs, he continues to have a need to shepherd his heart when it's 109 degrees outside and he's, he's stacking chairs. Um, so the need to, to serve as you shepherd your heart, and to shepherd your heart as you serve, I should say, stays with us. That's our third discipline is our ministry, and it's so important that we carry our heart into that. Our fourth discipline, as we see on our sheet, is the qualifications and when we look at the deacon qualifications of being a man who is is the husband of one wife, and he's a man who is not double-tongued, he has a single tongue, and he's a man who is not fond of sordid gain, and he's not given to greed, he manages his home well, all of those things are the byproduct of a man who is shepherding his heart. Those aren't targets you aim for apart from shepherding your heart, because if you do that apart from shepherding your heart, they're just going to be a list of things that you want to do. So we want to make sure that we continue to shepherd our heart, carrying with us what God has revealed about himself to us in the reading of his word and what we've learned about the Lord as we pray back to him, confessing, praising him, thanking him, laying our requests before him. That's what we want to take into our pursuit of being a deacon qualified man at this church. The fifth discipline is our hermeneutic. And the shepherding of our heart carries into that area as well whether we're here in build or we're in H3 or whether we're in build and we're in H3 or whether we're in Grace Bible Institute or we're in Shepherdology. Um, if we go into those things apart from shepherding our heart, it'll be an academic endeavor and that's all it's going to be. But when we go into any one of those courses of study, courses of activity for us, taking with us what God has taught us through their time together with him in the word. It is much richer. We have a much greater appreciation for God, a much deeper love for him, a much greater desire to be faithful to him, 
in the study. I've found myself, and I, I can share this because I've had to guard my own heart in H3, of thinking that it's this academic pursuit, and it's not. H3 is all about your heart and your home, your hands, your head, those things. So it's so important that we take the shepherding of our heart into the hermeneutic that we, we have here at this church. And the last discipline is all about the vision and the purpose of our church. And it's essential, it's vital, it's critical that we take the shepherding of our heart into that area as well. Because we are all about drawing people in and building them up and sending them out. And the way you build yourself up is by shepherding your heart with God's word. And when we look at the vision of our church, we look at the purpose of our church, we want to celebrate the glory of God and we want to see that most obviously represented through the cross of Jesus Christ and how he gave his life and how we want to demonstrate that by a life that's been transformed by the Holy Spirit. Um, All of those things are, are accomplished by a guy who is shepherding his heart. So discipline one feeds into all the other disciplines and we want to just encourage you this week and the next week and next month and next year just to continue to shepherd your heart and you'll see that that every other discipline of your life is is benefited by it. So we don't want to have silos where we have one area, one discipline, and then a separate discipline and another discipline. They all are different things, but the one that underlies all of them is, is the shepherding of your heart. And if that is in place and if that is healthy and that is good, we want to just encourage you to carry that into all of the areas of your of your life and all the disciplines of your life. Okay? Uh, the men's conference is uh, September. It's October already. October 25th, a Friday, and um, Saturday, October 26th. It's on your schedule in your notebook. Um, that's two weeks from today. The uh, We will not be having build two weeks from today because we're trying to encourage, if you can, to go to that. There's, there's not a whole lot that we do... Um, during the year with other churches. But God, it's been really, really super encouraging as an elder to see that there are uh, a number of growing, like-minded churches. Um, And so for us to be able to get together with them and do something like this is huge. Um, I encourage you guys, if you haven't yet, get signed up for that. You can go to uh, the, the website if you, if you don't know even what I'm talking about, email Allie or email me and I'll get you what you need to know um, about it and, and get yourself signed up. Trevor. What, on a Saturday, what is the time? Yeah, I don't have that right in front of me, but it's going to start in the morning. It's on Friday night and Saturday. But I mean, like, what is the actual Saturday? It ends, it's pretty much the whole day. we got it right here. Let me tell you. It's right here. We're done basically around 4 o'clock on Saturday. So if you want to take a look at that, you can take a look at that. Um, four different pastors, three in the valley here are, are speaking. Myself, Scott Christmas from Northwest Community um, Church, where, which is a church that's hosting it. Clay Miller, who's out at Santan Bible Church, is going to be speaking. And then um, a guy named Dan Dumas, who used to work out at Grace in L.A. under um, MacArthur is coming out as well and be speaking. Uh, we're talking about basically biblical manhood, breaking biblical manhood down into the four categories that are on there. Act, uh, see, it's a leadership, a defender, 
leader, defender, learner. Being a learner and being a brother. I've got the brother part down. That's what I know. Um, or at least I will know by the time we start. So um, that's what we're going to be talking on. It should be a good time just to be together with a bunch of different churches, several different churches in the valley. And it's, it's at Northwest. It's at Northwest. We're not hosting it. Northwest is hosting it, which is at 35th Ave and 43rd and Bell. Thank you. How do you know that? You used to go hang out that way? Okay. Yeah, you, you, you can organize your own carpooling. You can camp over there somewhere if you want, on the west side. Or not. Anyway. Saturday morning you can get there. Yeah. Pretty quick. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it's we, we've done it. This is our, I think, this is this our, we've done it at least once. Maybe we've done it twice. I can't remember. But it's been really good. I've, been, I've enjoyed being a part of that. Um, all right. Let's see. Let's not cover this. Hey, take out your uh, your your homework sheet today. Is is it a blue one on the handout that you got today? Yellow. yellow. Is it yellow? It's yellow. Take out your yellow one. Uh, just so that you understand your homework, we'll just run through it real quick. On the front side is another section of Psalm 119. It's an opportunity for you. Just simple, basic things there. Look, I don't want to confine your study and your interaction with Psalm 119 to the things that I put on that sheet for you. Um, so if you want to do more, please go beyond that. Um, these are just things to get you looking and observing God's Word. Um, it's just an opportunity for you to practice the discipline of shepherding your heart in a passage of Scripture, putting it down on paper, turning it into us, letting us say, hey, good job. Hey, think about this as you're you know, doing whatever, as you're, as you're studying. Yes? Um. Yeah, for the conference. That's a learner, not the brother. That's wrong. Did you know that? You didn't know that. I knew that. I had heard that they put it wrong, that they flipped it wrong. But I am actually teaching on what it is to be a brother. They can tell me that. They can print out as much as they want. And I, when I stand up, I don't care if somebody right before me just talked about the brother. When I stand up, I'm going to talk about the brother. Because, no, we, we, uh, I was, yeah. Thank you for pointing out. Now I understand because Scott Christmas called me last week or texted me and he said, hey, don't, aren't you doing the brother? And I said, yeah. He goes, oh, we got it wrong on the, because he has the learner. And he said, we, we printed it wrong. And so I'm like, I need to do the brother because I turned in all my stuff for it. So anyway. Yeah, and no, even a week afterwards, nobody would remember anyway. So, anyway, we were talking about something else. What was? Oh, your homework. Uh, Psalm 119 on the one side. Turn it over to the back side. Basically, what you're going to get on your back side uh, of your homework this whole year is probably something out of Proverbs, uh, like your homework was for the fear of the Lord. Um, this one has to do with, I'm going to let you look at a bunch of verses on the heart in Proverbs. And what I really want you to be watching for is other words that, the, the, that Solomon associates with the heart. Uh, things like humility, things like uh, perversity of heart. Watch for the, the things that he links with the heart. And let that inform you in terms of, okay, why do I, what are, what are reasons why I need to shepherd my heart? Well, perversity exists at the heart level. Pride can exist at the heart level. Humility needs to exist at the heart level. You, you're going to come up with making up your own statements again and, 
And um, like I told our group when we were meeting together, I hope this helps you understand more of, of what it means to fear the Lord, what it means to uh, shepherd your heart, what it means to be a teachable man when we get to that one next. Um, but I also hope it's helpful for you as you're sitting with other brothers in the church that you can talk about uh, somebody who doesn't know what it means to fear the Lord. Do you have a better idea of what it means to fear the Lord now from looking in Proverbs? You know, I want you to be able to be a blessing to those that you get a chance to fellowship with. Next, if you've got your notebook, I want you to open it up into the heart section. If you don't have your notebook, try to scooch next to somebody who does. And um, in the back, um, in the heart section, you'll see um, basically heart categories for consideration. All of that is just resources for you to look at. If you want to do more of your own study on the heart, you can do that. Um, There's another section of heart categories. I want you to turn to the sheet in the first tab on the heart that looks like this. It says at at the top, Discipline won the heart. The 856 occurrences of heart in the NASB. So it's at the end of um, your first section. Go one more. Uh, You'll find it it's before the next section. What, what I basically did is I, I went to um, NAS. Oh, you probably don't. You might not have it. You've got an old one. It's, 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 it's a good one. I have an old one. That's not it. I got 2008. I got it. You got a 2008 one in the end? Yeah, I have a 2008 one in the If you have no idea what I'm talking about, just look like you do right now. It's okay. Look on with somebody else. It's a. It's basically it runs through book by book of the Bible and tells you how many times, for instance, New American Standard translates whatever it was in Hebrew or Greek. They they use the word heart. And here's how I want to run across for you. If you are not in your life making your way bit by bit through the whole Bible, whether or not you read the Bible in a year, it's not about how soon you did. If you read the Bible five times a year, it's not about that. But if you confine yourself to your same five books that you love the most, and everybody loves the book of James, everybody reads the book of James, I don't know how many times, they keep coming, it's not like, what I found is I talk to people, they, they, they love the book of James. I, and I don't want you to not love the book of James, but I want you to read more than the book of James, because look at the book of James. book of James uses the word heart five times. So God, five times in um, the book of James, is going to say something specific about the inner man. That's great. What if you never read Ezekiel? Look at Ezekiel. How many times does God use the word heart? 31. 31 times. Look, what if you never read Deuteronomy? 45 times God addresses the heart in Deuteronomy. If you go away from some of these dark portions of your Bible and where the pages are all crisp and they stick together, if you never go there, God will not be able to address your heart with what he wants to reveal about the heart in Scripture. Read the Bible. Read all of it. Um, don't just gravitate towards your favorite books that you're aware of and you're familiar with. Get on a course, if it's not this year, get on a course where you're making your way methodically through the Bible over and over and over and over and over, uh, time and time again. So that's why that resource is in there for you. Okay? Any questions or comments on that?
you'll be blessed. You get in some of these books, you get into some of the minor prophets, and they've got some gems on addressing the heart, uh, what the inner man is. All right. Let's get your sheet up for today, what we're going to talk about. We're going to be going through a survey, a biblical survey on the heart. If we are going to shepherd our hearts, we need to understand what the Bible says the heart is, right? And so you can get your Bibles out, you can get your worksheet out. Let's talk first about what is the heart. Before we do that, though, we should pray one more time as we look at God's Word. It's an opportunity for us to express our dependence on God as we look at His Word, right? We need Him. So let's pray. Father, we do need you as we look at your word. We never want to assume that this is like picking up a newspaper and we don't have to think about what we're reading and the the meaning just flows. It doesn't seem to get obstructed as it comes in. Lord, these are your words. And um, the one who understands them um, needs to have your spirit because these are spiritually appraised ideas and concepts. And so we... Pray, and we just acknowledge that we need you. We need your spirit to illuminate um, your word for us so that we understand what we read. Um, We want to understand what we read so that we can worship you, so that we can know your son. We can grow in the knowledge of Jesus. We want to understand so that we can better grasp who we were without Jesus and who we are now in Christ and what you have done for us in him. Uh, Make us into worshipers because we understand what we read. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Let's talk first about what is the heart. Section one. Um, I'll I'll try to give you a summary at the end here of what we're talking about in number one. Um, So if you want to listen for a second, you want to jot down some key ideas as we go, as I'm talking, that's fine. But um, I'll I'll kind of cue you in towards the end and say, okay, here's the summary. Here's what you need to get. Okay, so if you want to listen first, you can do that for sure. Here's how the Old Testament uses the word heart. Um, It refers to, when you look at the way the Old Testament uses the word heart, it refers to the whole man. Your heart, again, is not a portion of you. It's not a piece of you. It's not like your hand. It's not like your physical heart where it's a part of you. Your heart in Scripture is a reference to you, but it's who you are inwardly. Um, You'll find... Uh, It it refers to the man's spiritual self, uh, his intellectual life, where his feelings are. In the Old Testament, the heart will be associated with feeling. In the Old Testament, the heart will be associated with thinking or understanding, knowing. Um, The inner man, the heart, will be associated with a man's will, with his intentions, what he designed and planned from the heart. In the Old Testament, uh, the heart is the man with all of his urges, all of his desires. It's the person in his totality. That's what heart means when you see it in the Old Testament. Um, I'll give you an example. Uh, Psalm 73, um, verse 26. You can jot it down if you want. Um, psalmist there says my flesh and my heart may fail but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever um, giving, he, he's giving a contrast not a contrast even but just a, a twofold description of himself outwardly and inwardly um, and God being the strength of his heart when he feels he is failing inwardly 
Um, in the Old Testament, it is the word heart. It's a comprehensive term for who you are. I'm trying to say this as many different ways as I, as I possibly can. Um, and also associated with, this is really important to understand, associated with the heart in the Old Testament is the idea of responsibility. The man is responsible for what is going on in his inner man, in his heart. Okay? Um, that which comes out of the heart is distinctly the property of the man. So what comes out of your heart is not somebody else's responsibility in the Old Testament. It's the man's responsibility for what goes on in his heart. Um, uh, and it makes him responsible. Uh, it's the place where God meets the man. When, when In the Old Testament, when God deals with man, he's dealing with man at the heart level, at the inner man level. Um, it's the place in the Old Testament where conversion takes place. God converts the heart, the inner man. What about the New Testament? Um, when you get to the New Testament, you do not find that the direction that the heart was going in the Old Testament was this way. And then you open up to Matthew 1 and all of a sudden the heart language goes this way. At a divergent task, it's not a. They're not skew lines that never cross. They're not even parallel lines that are going the same direction. It's the same line from the Old Testament that now is even extending more. More is now being said in the New Testament in the same line of trajectory as the Old Testament. Um, it coincides with the Old Testament understanding of it. It's the it's the inner life in the New Testament. It's the center of your personality, who you are. It's the place where God reveals Himself to men. Um, it's associated. You'll find. Watch yourself. Do you think of the mind as the place where you do thinking, and the heart where you do feeling? If you think that, you don't have a biblical understanding of the heart, because the heart thinks. Hebrews 4.12 uh, The word of God judges the thoughts and the intentions of the mind Heart So the heart is the place where you are as a thinker It includes the intellectual life It includes your spiritual life um, Your power of, uh, of your spirit Of your reason is found there it's, where it's, your, it's your soul It's feelings It's passions It's instinct It's simply the person. I think that one of the best examples of this, I've shown this to you before, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 4, uh, talking about the way that a wife needs to be submissive to her husband, the description of her. Let it be the hidden person of the heart. What is Peter telling us there? Um, there is the person, you, woman, and it's hidden, and it's called your heart. It's who you are inwardly. Look at the way that Paul talks about it. Go to 2 Corinthians 5. Verse 12. Uh, this is helpful in terms of understanding what the heart is. And then we're going to trace this through the Old Testament to the New Testament. 2 Corinthians 5.12 We are not again as commending ourselves to you, but we are giving you an occasion to be proud of us so that you will have an answer for those who take pride in appearance and not in heart. What is set in contrast to the appearance? What you see with the eyes. It's the heart. So it's inward, the, the inward person. Second uh, Thessalonians two seventeen does the same thing. Um, uh, the, the, in the New Testament, you'll find a, a, a word that's used as a synonym. Sometimes it means the exact same thing. Is the word mind? The word mind. Um, let me give an example of this. You're in Second Corinthians. Look at Second Corinthians three fourteen. 
2 Corinthians 3, 14 and 15, watch this. But their minds were hardened, talking about Israel. For until this day, at the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because that veil is removed in Christ. But to this day, when, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. So look in, in verse 14. Their minds are hardened. Um, there's a veil that remains unlifted over their minds. Verse 15, though, talks about the veil lies over their heart. So heart and mind are interchangeable in the New Testament. Do you understand that? So mind is another way uh, to refer to who you are inwardly as a thinker, as a rational person. Uh, your mind or your heart can also reveal who you are inwardly as a thinker as well. Um, Philippians 4.7 is the same thing. Um, and the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension will guard your what? Hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Uh, they can be viewed as synonymous with each other. So it's you, it's who you are as a thinker, as a feeler, as a, a person who wills. Uh, and it's also the place where you are responsible to God. This continues in the New Testament. Um, shameful desires dwell in the heart. The heart is disobedient. The heart is impenitent in the New Testament. Um, the heart can be hard in the New Testament. It is faithless in the New Testament. It can be dull and darkened in the New Testament. No one understands the heart in the New Testament, let alone can change it. Um, corruption stems from the heart and comes out of the mouth in the New Testament. Uh, it's the place in the New Testament where God deals with the man as, as either judge or savior. Um, conversion takes place in the heart and when the heart is converted, the whole man is changed. Let me summarize now. If you want to write anything down, just write this down. It's another way, the heart is another way of referring to who you are in totality before God. But inwardly speaking, it's who you are in totality before God, but inwardly speaking. And it is where God meets you as judge or as Savior. It's where He meets you as your judge or as your Savior. We have some understandings of this in terms of the inner thing. Have you ever found yourself saying, or have you ever heard anybody saying, uh, after maybe a misunderstanding of what you've said or done, um, have you ever heard yourself say, but if you only knew my heart? What we're, what we're trying to make an appeal to, I'm not saying that's even necessarily right thinking in completeness, but what we're trying to appeal to is there's something about me inwardly that didn't come out that you need to know. So even we understand in our fallen ways of expressing things um, that there's an inner person. It's the inner person of the heart. Okay, um, You can see the inner person of the heart in all three of these. If you want to keep this close to you from last time when we were together, um, this unregenerate guy over here, he has an inner man. He has a heart. He is a heart. Okay, uh, the, the, the mixed condition believer has an inner man. Um, when you die and your body goes into the grave, the inner man still exists over here. Okay, the spirit, the inner man. When there's a resurrection and you get the new body like Jesus has, there will be an inner man and an outer man. But the outer man will be much different than this. By the way, I was thinking about this uh, last week. I was, I was in California. I got to go to a different church and um, the, the, the elder was praying. And while he was praying, something came to my mind. It was like, 
on the resurrection. And it made me think of the chart. The resurrection that we are going to get is what I would call a forward resurrection. Okay, Lazarus had a, a backward resurrection. What I mean by that is he was resurrected back to the body that he had before. When Jesus was resurrected, it was not a backwards resurrection. It was a forward resurrection to a new body that is sown from above, 1 Corinthians 15. When you get resurrected, you're not going to get the old kind of body that you have now. You're going to be resurrected forward, and you will have a body and an inner man. And both of those two things will be in complete alignment with God all of the time. There will be no friction between them, resistance between them. Just like with Jesus. Now, he, didn't, he had it in both bodies. No resistance, no friction. Tempted outwardly, but no um, resistance um, or uh, yeah, no friction from within. So anyway, there's a heart in all three conditions that we have. Okay? Do you understand what we're talking about when we talk about the heart? Biggest thing you can walk away with is we're not talking about a portion of you. Like it's over here in a corner and there's the rest of you over here. We are talking about you. So another way to say discipline one, shepherd your heart to the word of God. What do we mean? Shepherd what? You. Shepherd yourself to the word of God, but you're doing it at the inner man level. Who you are inwardly before God. Trevor. Just to clarify, you would say in the New Testament, I didn't say that. I didn't say that. I think there are distinctions between soul and heart and things like that. But soul, uh, heart, and mind. There's lots of times there's there's a lot of overlap between them. Each of them have their own unique distinctions that sometimes the other terms can't um, fully grasp. But it's like if you could lay hula hoops kind of over each other. And there's parts where they all overlap a little bit. And heart and mind does that a lot in the New Testament. So, yeah. All right, you guys ready? Number two. Let's talk about what can be said of the human heart from Scripture. Go to Genesis chapter 6. Be ready to turn the pages of your Bible and be ready to move. We're going to throw it into the next gear here. Genesis 6. You know what Genesis 6 is. It's God coming to um, Noah, telling him that a flood is coming. Right? Genesis 6, verse 5 and 6. What can be said about the human heart from Scripture? Number one, it is an undivided heart and evil against God. And by the way, what am I describing here as we start? I want to start, we're going to start with the, 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 that unmixed, I'm sorry, yeah, that unmixed man. What we're primarily going to be describing on your chart is this guy over here today, on the far left. Okay? The one lost in sin, the one who does not know Jesus Christ, the one who has not been born again. We're going to be describing that heart to begin with, and we're going to move across the chart as we go. Look at verse 5. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on earth, and that 75% of the intent of the thoughts of his heart was sometimes evil infrequently. Now, being ridiculous, trying to make these words jump out. Do you see this? Every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Um, Whenever you say in a conversation with your wife or whoever, one of your kids, you always, you never, those are code words for let's back up and, 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 and have a reality check. Okay? When God uses always and only and continually, 
it's not he doesn't need to be checked. Um, and he's saying here every intent of the thoughts of the heart was only evil, nothing else, and it was only that continually. Okay, so he's making a statement about this being a heart that is undivided in evil against God. Go to Proverbs chapter twenty. We're going to be moving quickly here. Proverbs twenty verse nine. What else is the heart? What can be said of the heart? from scripture it is a heart beyond my cleansing what does Solomon say who can say Proverbs 20 verse 9 who can say I have cleansed my heart I am pure from sin the understood implied answer is no one can say that the stain of sin and the 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 stain of impurity has been so powerfully set within us that you and I do not have the power or the ability to take that stain of sin away and cleanse our own hearts. There is no exception to this. There is no one who can cleanse his heart and say that he is pure from sin. Third, let's go to Romans chapter 2, verse 5. Romans 2, verse 5. But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Here's the main clause in this verse. You are storing up wrath for yourself. Okay, You're storing it up in the day of wrath, in the day of revelation of the righteous judgment of God. You're storing up wrath for yourself. Okay, um, It's because of your stubbornness an unrepentant heart, Paul says. Paul's making a case for mankind being completely lost, being completely depraved. Um, chapter 2 is a continuation of that, so he's speaking of humanity. And, and even though humans might at some point pick up and say, well, I'm going to judge you because you're doing some things that are ungodly. And he's, his whole case here in, first, in chapter 2 is that when you judge others and you practice the same things yourself, you condemn yourself. And so he's talking about a lost soul here who is in that condition, even taking on the robe of some kind of self-righteousness, is, uh, has a stubborn and unrepentant heart, and because of that, that one is storing up wrath for himself. So what can be said from Scripture about the human heart? It is an unrepentant heart that is storing up appropriate wrath. It's deserved wrath. Even though it's robed in some kind of a moral judgment judging others, yet the inner man is unrepentant before God. What else can be said about the human heart? Go to Mark chapter 3, verse 5. I love this. This is a... When I read this verse maybe about a year or two ago, again, it's like I never read it before. I love it when that happens when you read your Bible and you're like, who put that verse in my Bible? I never saw that before. Does that ever happen to you? Okay, it only happens to me. Um... After, okay, let me back up. Verse 1. He entered in again into the synagogue. Jesus did. And a man was there whose hand was withered. They were watching him to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. What wickedness. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Get up and come forward. And he said to them, Is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath? Is it lawful to save a life or to kill? But they kept silent. And this is meek and mild Jesus. Look what it says. After looking around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. So here it is, kind, compassionate Jesus to the man who needs to be healed. But their hardness of heart angered the Lord Jesus. Guys, the Lord Jesus is angered 
by hardness of heart. He is. It grieves him to see that. So what can be said about the human heart from Scripture? It is a hardened heart which provokes Christ to anger and grief. Go back to the Old Testament, Isaiah 57. Watch this. This is terrifying. And yet enlightening. And it gives, it gives hope in the gospel. Um, Isaiah 57, verse 17. What can be said about the heart? It is a heart that will not change even under righteous anger's rod. And here's what I mean by that. Verse 17. Yahweh says to his people who have run off away from him, because of the iniquity of his unjust gain, I was angry and struck him. Now you know why Jesus, the second member of the Godhead in the flesh, was angered when he saw hardness of heart. Because Yahweh has always been this. Because of the iniquity of his unjust gain, I was angry and I struck him, God says. I hid my face and was angry. Well, how did that discipline work? How did that judgment work on their hearts? And he went on turning away in the way of his heart. Does God's just judgment change the human heart? No. Because God planned for something else to have the power to change the human heart. Let me remind you, uh, you can write down with Isaiah 57, 17, go back to Genesis chapter 8, verse 21. Let me give you the bookends on the flood. Guys, this is, this is really a... This should open your eyes when you're, when you're reading your Bible from the beginning to the end. Um, let me give you the bookends on the flood. Genesis 6-5, remember? We just looked at that. And have Genesis 8-21 ready. Here's Genesis 6-5. Before the flood, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Flood comes, turn the page, they get off the ark. Chapter 8, verse 21. <coughs> the Lord smelled the smooth, soothing aroma. And the Lord said to himself after the flood, I will never again curse the ground on the account of man, for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. Did the flood change man's condition? No. Why? Because God did not design his judgment to be that which changes the heart. So what can be said about the human heart? That it's a heart that uh, will not change even under judgment. Guys, that's a terrible heart. That is a terrible, terrifying condition. That it can have God's anger being poured out on it and it doesn't change. Matthew 15, what can be said? It's the heart that defiles all of the man. You know this passage well Matthew 15 in particular verses 18 to 20 but the thing that the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart and those defile the man you remember the Jews were all concerned about things externally coming towards them and it's the external things that defiled them they thought go to the market had to come back wash your hands because you interacted where the Gentiles were they were concerned about all that kind of external stuff and Jesus says well actually what came out of your mouth came from your heart and the things that were there is what defile you verse 19 for out of the hearts come evil thoughts murders adulteries fornications thefts false witness slanders these are the things which defile the man but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile the man So what can be said of the human heart from Scripture? It's a heart that defiles all of the man. Lastly, 
knowing this, the writer of Hebrews, knowing the, the dark condition of the human heart, what did he warn the Hebrew believers who were considering turning away from following Christ to go back to following the law? He says this in Hebrews 3.12, Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you this kind of heart, an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. He turns to the church that is considering turning away from the gospel and he warns them that is a heart that must be avoided at all costs. That heart must be avoided at all costs. So what can be said of the human heart from scripture? It's an undivided heart and evil against God. It's a heart beyond my cleansing. It's an unrepentant heart storing up wrath. It's a hardened heart which provokes Christ to anger. It's a heart that will not change under the righteous anger's rod. It's a heart that defiles all the man. It's a heart that must be avoided at all costs. That's only seven verses, seven passages out of the Bible. There are 856 occurrences of the heart in the New American Standard anyway. Number three. Here's a question. Is the sinner alert to this condition? Is the sinner aware that his inner man is this way? Love these. I'm I'm just going to let you look at two verses. Uh, We might look at a couple more. Go back to Deuteronomy 11. Deuteronomy 11, verse 13. Moses warns Israel... On the plains of Moab, as they're getting ready to head into the promised land, he reiterates the law to them. He says, It shall come about, if you listen obediently to my commandments, which I'm commanding you today, to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all your heart and all your soul, that he, Yahweh, will give the rain for your land in its season and the early and late rain, that you may gather in your grain and your new wine and your oil. He will give grass in your fields for your cattle. You will eat and you will be satisfied. You will have the American way of life. You'll have everything you want. Verse 16. Beware. Wait a minute. I, I get everything I want. God blesses. He pours out his blessing. And the next word you say is beware. Why would you say beware? God just blessed us with all of these great things that we want surrounding us. Yeah, that's the time to beware. Beware that your hearts are not deceived, that you do not turn away and serve other gods and worship them. Listen. The heart is easily deceived even when it's surrounded by the best. In fact, especially maybe when we are surrounded and drowning in the blessing of God, watch the heart. That's what he told Israel. Is the sinner alert to his heart's devastating condition? Well, the heart is easily deceived. The heart is prone to deception. The inner man, and again, it's not a portion of me that's prone to deception. It's who I am inwardly that is prone to deception as a lost sinner. That is a time to watch. Good times are um, are powerless against the inner man's proneness to deception apart from Christ. You can bring good blessing around an unbeliever and it will not change the heart. And the heart will not even be aware. The heart can be deceived. You're very familiar with this passage. Jeremiah 17 verse 9. You guys know it? What does it say about the heart? How deceitful. The heart is more deceitful than all else. Okay, full stop. 
go on, uh, this is the way I describe this year after year, make a list, go through, the, go through the earth, scour the lands of all of the earth, and look for what you find deceitful. Make a list for all of the things that you find to be deceitful. And the human heart will never be knocked out of the number one spot. That's what he's saying. The heart is more deceitful than anything else. Um, its sickness, verse 9, is beyond compare. It's desperately sick. Who can understand it? it the sickness of the human heart is beyond your ability as, as a human to understand. Does the heart, does, is the center alert to the heart's devastating condition? No, it's not. We could even stray into um, verses like Romans 16 that you have there and James 1. We could stray into the mixed condition, into that next part of what you become in Christ and, and see that there is still a proneness to deception. Look, what's, there, there's huge, huge differences between having been a, a, an unmixed man in sin and now a mixed man in sin and in righteousness before God. There's huge differences. There, there are some similarities. What's the similarity between the two? There was sin over here, and sin is deceptive. And guess what in Christ? I still have sin, and guess what? God changed me towards sin, but God, when Christ died, did not change what sin is. Sin is deceptive. It's as deceptive as it was before the cross, as it is after the cross. It will try to deceive. And Paul warns in Romans 16 that even <coughs> believers need to beware that they could be deceived by others uh, uh, people who are false teachers, that you can even deceive your own heart. So we can even stray into, look, if, if, a, if a mixed creature needs to be concerned that he is not deceived by his own sin, how much more so does the one who has not been born again need to be concerned that he's deceived? So the sinner is not alert to the heart's devastating condition. Um, how can he be alert alert to the condition of his own heart when it is surrounded by deception and filled with deception. Apart from God, the sinner cannot become aware of his own heart's true condition before God. Do you guys understand that? Apart from God, you and I will never understand what our heart's true condition was before Christ. We just can't know it. He has to come and open our eyes. And here's what's terrifying. Number four, what standard has God called the heart to? This is, you know, Deuteronomy 6. Let's look at the Matthew 22 repeat of that command. Um, here's God's standard from the very beginning that runs the length of the Bible from from Deuteronomy 6 all the way through Matthew 22 and beyond. Matthew 22, verse 36. You know this teacher... Which is the great commandment in the law? And he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. And of course, there's a second one like it, that you love your neighbor as yourself. So get this. That's what God says to humans with that kind of heart that we just went through. Okay? The, the condition of the inner man is this. Okay? It's... It's a heart that is undivided and evil against God. Are you following me? Um, it is beyond the cleansing that man can bring to it. It's a heart that is unrepentant. And it's only storing up wrath. 
It's a heart that grieves and angers the Lord Jesus. It's a heart that not even God's judgment against it will change. Um, That heart is the source of defilement in the man. And that is a heart that must be avoided at all costs. And, And that heart is deceived when even surrounded by blessing. And that heart is an excellent deceiver above all other hearts. And that heart is supposed to love God? That's what God says. Love me with not a piece of who you are, but with all that you are. And with all of your soul. Let me think of as many different ways to sum you up. Heart, soul, mind, strength. Love me with all of it. Guys, that is a huge problem. Because he just described the bottom of the barrel and then he just put up on the heights of all heights. Love me with that inner man. So then the next question I want to ask, number five, God, did did you see that heart that you just asked me to love you with? Did you see that? Do you see what's going on there? Let me remind you of some things. 1 Samuel 16, we're now in number five. Go back to 1 Samuel 16. You remember when uh, Samuel was told to go to the house of Jesse? and anoint one of his sons. I love how God kind of like leaves him in the dark a little bit, makes him dependent. Go to the house of Jesse and anoint one of his sons as king. And he has to go through the whole thing, kind of like Adam in the garden going through all the animals. Uh, none of those are the helper. You know, First one comes in, Eliab, and, and he's like, oh, this is it. Verse 6 of chapter 16, when they entered, he looked at Eliab and thought, Surely Yahweh's anointed is before him. But, the, but Yahweh said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance. Don't look at his height. Because I have rejected him. For God sees not as a man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the what? Heart. You know that. First Kings 8, go there. Does God know what he's, is going on in the human heart? Yeah, he knows what's going on. Solomon has built the king, uh, the king. Solomon has built a temple in 1 Kings 8. He is dedicating it and he is praying. Look at verses 37 to 40. He is part of his prayer. If there's famine in the land, if there's pestilence, if there's blight or mildew, locust or grasshopper, if their enemy besieges them in the land of their cities, whatever plague, whatever sickness there is, whatever prayer or supplication is made by any man by, or by all your people Israel, each knowing the affliction of his own heart and spreading his hands toward this house, then here in heaven, your dwelling place. See, even Solomon knew that the dwelling place was not the real dwelling place. And forgive and act and render to each according to all his ways, whose heart you know, for you alone know the hearts of all the sons of men. Sometimes God uses means. Look, God doesn't have to do anything to know the heart of man because he knows all things. Sometimes scripture presents him as using means to know it, look at Second Chronicles 32, verse 31. This is said in regards to Hezekiah. Remember, Hezekiah gets 15 more years. I think it's 15 more. Isn't it 15 more years? He's, he's dying, and I think then God gives him 15 more years. And he says, in, um, and then the, the envoys from Babylon come, and he shows them everything in his treasury. Right? You remember this? Verse 31. Even in the matter of the envoys of the rulers of Babylon, who sent to him to inquire of the wonder that had happened in the land, God, these are some of the most terrifying words in Scripture. 
God left him alone to test him that he might know all that was in his heart. Guys, I never want God to leave me to myself. God can see the human heart. He knows it instantly. Sometimes he uses means to reveal it even more clearly. Um, Go to Mark chapter 2. Does God see this heart? Mark chapter 2, verse 6. What about Jesus? Did he know everything that was going on in the heart? Remember the paralytic? His friends brought him to the house, tore the roof open, dropped him down in front of Jesus. Verse 6, some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts. You see, the heart is the place where reasoning goes on. It's your inner man who reasons. And the reasoning in their hearts, they were thinking, why does this man speak that way? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, immediately. How soon did Jesus know that? Immediately. Aware in his spirit. So listen, spirits are doing things that you and I can't see. The spirit of them, the spirit of Jesus. The heart of the man in the heart of Jesus. Jesus, from his heart, knows what's going on in their hearts. Nobody said a word. Knowing this, that they're reasoning that way within themselves, he said to them, why are you reasoning about these things in your hearts? Jesus knows what's going on in the heart. Proverbs 24. Go back. Don't get tired turning your pages. Don't don't get weary in this. Keep going. You need this. Proverbs 24, verse 11. We're going to turn the corner with, obviously, the obvious answer is, does God see this? Of course, he sees it. It's overwhelming he sees this, right? But add this to it. Here's exhortation from Solomon to his son. Verse 11. Deliver those who are being taken away to death and those who are staggering to slaughter. Oh, hold them back. And if you say, we didn't know this. Does he not consider it who who weighs the hearts? And does he not know it who keeps your soul? And will he not render to man according to his work? So not only does God see what's going on in the human heart, but he's doing what with it? He is weighing it for the purpose of rendering to each man what the man deserves. That's scary. It's one thing for him to know. It's another thing for him to know and to weigh it and to assess it for the purpose of rendering judgment. Go back to Jeremiah 17. We read verse 19. We left off an important one. Let's add verse 10 now. The heart is more deceitful than all else, verse 9, and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? Verse 10. I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give to each man according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds. So guys, yes, does God see that this heart is stuck down into the muck and the mire of sin? And that he has laid a charge for it to love him with everything that that heart has and is. Does he see that? Yes, he, he does. And he is weighing that heart to render to it what it deserves. What does God command sinners to do with such a heart? This is, I, I love the way the Bible lays this out. <laughs> 
go back to Deuteronomy 10. What did God? We're in number six now. What did God command sinners to do with this heart? Deuteronomy 10. God called the sinner to do something about his own heart. Watch this. Deuteronomy 10, verse 12. Ah, verse 16. We'll just drop down to the key part. Ah, I'll back up. This is good. Verse 12, sorry. Now, Israel, who, uh, what does the Lord your God require from you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all of his ways and love him and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and to keep the Lord's commandments and his statutes, which I'm commanding you today for your good? Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the highest heavens and the earth and all that is in it. Yet on your fathers did the Lord set his affection to love them, and he chose their descendants after them, even you above all peoples, as it is this day. So circumcise your heart. Command. It's a command. Circumcise your heart. That's a significant surgical procedure to be done at the inner man level. It is obviously then a radical removal of all that is wrong with the inner man or else the heart will not change. Stiffen your neck no longer. God called the sinner to do something about his own heart. Do you know what God is saying when he, when he commands that? He is saying to Israel at this point, you are the ones responsible for this heart, for the way that it is. And I'm going to hold you responsible for changing it. I command you to change it. Go to Jeremiah 4. We're going to run from before Israel even got into the land, and by the time we get to Jeremiah 4, they are about to be kicked out of the land. Uh, Not kicked out, but taken into captivity in Jeremiah. Jeremiah 4, verse 4 and verse 14. Jeremiah 4, verse 4. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord and remove the foreskins of your heart. I love the parallelism there. What are you supposed to circumcise in the first line of verse 4? Yourself, you, to Yahweh. And remove the foreskins of your heart, your inner man. So who is your inner man? It's you. Who's yourself? It's your heart. It's who you are. And the command is to the Jews to do this. Men of Judah, inhabitants of Jerusalem. Or else my wrath will go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. Right? I mean, he sees the heart. He's been weighing it to render to every single person what is due to that heart. And so he says to that one who's doomed, change your heart. Look over at verse 14. Wash your heart from evil, O Jerusalem, that you may be saved. How long will your wicked thoughts lodge within you? He's weighed the heart. He knows there's wicked thoughts that are lodged in it that are not going to be set loose until that heart is washed. Wash it. Go to Ezekiel 18. I hope you're feeling a little uncomfortable with this language. These are not my words, by the way. Whose words are these? These are the Lord's. But hold on, we're getting, number seven will help, okay? But we're going to let it, these verses speak for themselves first. Ezekiel 18, verse 30. Therefore Yahweh says, I will judge you, O house of Israel, each according to his conduct, declares the Lord God, repent and turn away from all your transgressions, so that iniquity may not become a stumbling block to you. Cast away from you all your transgressions which you have committed, and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. For why will you die, O house of Israel? I have no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies. Therefore repent and live. That's quite a command. Make yourselves a new heart. We could even go over to Joel. 
chapter 2. <coughs> Daniel, Hosea, right? Joel chapter 2, verse 12. Yet even now declares the Lord to Israel, Return to me with all of your heart. Return to me with fasting, weeping, and mourning, and rend your heart. And not your garments. You want to tear something? You want to show grief? You want to show the proper mourning? You want to show the proper revulsion over what you've become? Don't grab for your, your cloak. We're going to talk about this in, tomorrow in, in Acts. Paul does this in, in Lystra when they want to start sacrificing to him and Barnabas. Um, what they did is they grabbed, they, they moved their robe out of the way and they grabbed their, their undergarment that they had and they tore it about six inches down. And it was an outward expression of deep sorrow or grief or revulsion or um, just disgust. And he's saying, you want to rend something? Don't do your clothes. Rend your heart. You do that. Tear it. Make it soft. Make it brokenhearted. Return to the Lord your God. That's quite a set of commands to people who aren't even aware that their heart is deceitful. We could stray into the mixed condition in James chapter 4, verse 8. The the call is still the same to the mixed creature. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. The new creature in Christ is even culpable. But with a huge difference. The, the, The believer in Jesus has the ability to renew his mind to purify his heart. All right, so now we got to complete the thought in verse 6 with number 7, or <coughs> verse 6, but in number 6 with ver, uh, number 7. What did God command sinners to do with that kind of heart? You make a new one, you circumcise that heart, you wash that heart. Well, nobody can wash the heart. Who can cleanse it? Who can say that? Number 7. What did God promise he would do for sinners with such a heart? Go back to Deuteronomy 30. The same place we started, right? Deuteronomy, where he said, circumcise your heart. Go to Deuteronomy 30. Same author, same book. Watch this. Oh, look at verse 4. If your outcasts are at the ends of the earth, from there Yahweh your God will gather you, and from there he will bring you back. Uh, Yahweh your God will bring you into the land which your fathers possessed, and you shall possess it, and he will prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers. Right here. Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart. So remember he said, circumcise your heart so that you'll love me. And then what does he, in that command, promise them? I'll do it. I'll do it. So then why did he give them the command if he was going to be the one to do it? What is he trying to show with the command? You, Israel, are culpable for this heart. You are the ones responsible for it being this way, and the burden lies on you as such in ruining this heart to change it. However, I will do it. What a merciful God. The command is not there because we actually can apart from him. The command is there to highlight culpability, responsibility. I'm responsible to change this heart. How does that work for the unbeliever? The unbeliever hears the command and says, I can't. The unbeliever who's being enlightened by the ministry of the Holy Spirit in regeneration is saying, but I can't do anything with this heart. 
How will I possibly do it? God says, I'll do it. That's what he did. Look at Jeremiah 31. This is the promise of the new covenant. Oh, by the way, uh, just so that we understand, in Deuteronomy um, chapter 30, what covenant is this under in, in Deuteronomy? The old covenant, right? Mosaic covenant. Um, the old covenant existed knowing that a new heart for people who entered into Mosaic covenant, it existed knowing that the heart, a new heart was needed. Because you could enter into the old covenant as one who was not born again. You could enter into it day age or circumcised, you're a child of the covenant. And yet, underlying that whole covenant, someday we should just talk about how the covenants are related. There's a covenant that existed before Mosaic covenant, before the old covenant. It's the Abrahamic covenant. What was that covenant all about? The one who believes is reckoned as righteous before God. That's God's way of saving. It always has been his way of saving. It will always be his way of saving sinners until he comes back. Okay? Then he tells that nation who is supposed to model that having righteousness on the basis of faith alone, he gives to them the Old Covenant or Mosaic Covenant. Well, you could enter into Mosaic Covenant and not really even be in the Abrahamic Covenant. You might have the sign of it, but you could enter into Mosaic Covenant and not be born again. And so all Mosaic Covenant did was aggravate the whole reality that you don't have the heart that you need. But within Mosaic Covenant, God never gave it with the intent that it would be in itself able to give you the new heart. All the Old Covenant could do was accent that you didn't have the new heart and, and aggravate that condition, that condition, make you feel condemned under not having a new heart. And then there's a new covenant that would come. And that new covenant, which is still undergirded by Abrahamic Covenant and as a part of it, you can't enter into the new covenant without first what? Being born again. And getting what? First, on day one. A new what? Heart. Do you see the difference between the new covenant and the old covenant? The old covenant here is aggravating all the time. He can say to them, you guys, your heart is wandering away from God. Do something about this. And then he makes a promise. There's a day coming when I'll do it for you to Israel. And that's Jeremiah 31. Look at that. Jeremiah 31. Verse 31. I just read this this morning in my reading through the Bible plan. Behold, days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and I'll make a new covenant with the house of Judah. It's not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them. We know which covenant he's talking about, right? But this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I will put my law within them and on their heart I will write it. And I will be their God and they shall be my people and so forth. Um, this is the new covenant uh, that he will carry out someday in all of his promises 
with Israel, with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Go to Ezekiel chapter 11. Watch this. Ezekiel highlights this. Ezekiel 11 verse 14. Mm, Let's start down to verse 19. I will give them one heart, speaking of the whole house of Israel from back in verse 15. Ezekiel 11 verse 19. I will give them, the house of Israel, one heart and put a new spirit within them. I will take the heart of stone out of their flesh and give them a heart of flesh, meaning a soft heart. A corporate promise. I'll give them one heart. You can go to Ezekiel chapter 36 and see the same thing in verse 26. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you and will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. The greatest thing of all happened. The very one whose blood would inaugurate that new covenant was shed in the death of Jesus. And in that last night with his disciples, he pointed to a cup of wine and what did he say about that? He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood that is shed for you. The new covenant is inaugurated. It's interesting. Go to Acts chapter 2. 50 days after Jesus said those kinds of words to his disciples the night before he died, his disciple Peter is preaching the gospel in Jerusalem. And at the end of preaching, verse 36, he reaches his climax. He says, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. I mean, remember the, remember the distinction that we saw? The human heart is way down there, apart from God, in the depths of sin. And the way up there is God's desire to love that kind of distance between God and um, Israel are that much at odds as well. What did they do with Messiah? They crucified him. They hung him naked on a Roman cross. And what did God do with him? He made him both Lord and Christ. God thought one way about Jesus of Nazareth. The Jews thought another way about Jesus of Nazareth. And finally, it hits them. When they heard this, they were pierced to the heart. They were wounded deeply. Um, this is the beginning of that new covenant effect for those who are believing. Um, the first thing that's happening is the heart is being torn by the work of, because of the work of Christ and shedding his blood as it's being preached. Go to Acts chapter 15. We're going to get to this in the weeks to come. We're not far away from it even now as we're working through Acts 14. It's going to be this council that's going to take place in Jerusalem because early on, the Pharisees who had believed out of uh, who had, who had believed Christ were saying it was necessary to circumcise the Gentiles and direct them to observe the law of Moses. Look at Acts 15 verse 6. 
The apostles and the elders came together to look into this matter, and after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. And they should have all just gone home at that point. They should have just all gone home because they knew that Peter had preached the gospel to Cornelius and others. And they believed. And God, who knows the heart, testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by what? By faith. Now, therefore, why do you put God to test, to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear, but we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they are also. So you enter into the new covenant by faith and the heart is cleansed. Okay, You can't enter into the new covenant apart from faith. Um, so what are we getting at in this point, number seven, six and seven together? So man is called to do something about the condition of his heart. And what that does in number six, again, is it accents man's responsibility, man's culpability, his guilt, and the way that that heart changes is man pleads his inability before God and turns to Christ. He feels his heart cut to the core and he goes to God in Christ and he trusts God's promise in the new covenant of his son's shed blood that God will do for him what he could never do for himself but that he was culpable for. Where does this fit? In here. The conversion event, right? As you follow the peak up to the event, this is all of that work of Christ and shedding his blood at the cross, the new covenant. This is everything he did uh, in his crucifixion and his resurrection and in the preaching of forgiveness of sins and repentance towards him. Um, that is what all comes about. We are responsible for this condition over here, guys. And the command from God to sinners is do something about it. And he runs you to a fork in the road where it drops you to your knees and say, I am guilty, but I can't do anything. I can't change this. Can the leopard change his spots? I can't change my evil. I can't wash myself. God, do it for me. And you trust Christ. And on the basis of his shed blood, paying the, the, the penalty of sin in your place, him bearing away all of your shame and your guilt before him. Him drinking the cup of wrath till the cup is dry. There's not a drop left for you. Guys, there's not a drop left for you. All of that work brings about a new birth. All of that work brings about justification by faith. All of that work brings about reconciliation. All of that work brings about redemption. It brings about adoption. It brings union with Christ. It brings expiation, propitiation, redemption. All of this is the work of Christ in the new covenant. We get to experience it. So, number eight. Lastly, what has God provided for those trusting in Him? You might think, well, that's that's the we just reached the pinnacle. What what else would we want to talk about? We've got to talk. We've got to bring it all the way back around to what we what are we even trying to develop here and discipline ourselves with? Number eight. What has God provided for those trusting in Him to help them see their heart's condition? Let me back up through this. Number two, we talked about this. The inner man of the sinner is devastated at the heart level before God. Number three, we then talked about how the sinner is easily overcome by the deception in his heart and that surrounds his heart. 
Then we talked about number four, God commands the sinner with that kind of heart to love him from the heart with everything that he has. And then we talked about number five, um, God actually understands what he's asking of sinners. He understands the condition of the heart. He sees the inner man completely. He tests it and he holds that inner man accountable for his condition. Then we talked about number six, how the greatest need at the inner level uh, for man is to be changed there, but the sinner can't change his own condition. So number seven, the sinner has to look away from himself and call out to God in Jesus Christ for him to do for him at the inner level what he cannot do for himself there, to cleanse him, his heart, to be circumcised there, to make him new. And so now what? What has God given to the one who trusts in God in all of that? He has given to him his word. Guys, he's given to us his word. Let's look at what he gave to what Old Testament believers were to depend upon. Go back to Deuteronomy chapter 6. One last sweep through the Bible, okay? We're almost done. Hang in there. Deuteronomy 6 verse 4. What did he give New Testament or I'm sorry, Old Testament believers? Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your what? heart and with all your soul and with all your might now watch this verse 6 these words which i am commanding you today shall be on your heart so love me with everything and put these words on your hearts what does god design your heart and his word to be in together a full contact sport from the very beginning it was this way For any Old Testament believer who, like Abraham, looked away from himself and trusted in Yahweh and God declared him righteous on the basis of faith alone, anybody within Israel who loved the Lord their God was to then put his words upon their heart. He designed from the beginning the heart and the word of God to be together. Right? Ezra chapter 7 verse 10, right after, um, or right before Nehemiah. Ezra chapter 7 verse 10 he was a scribe he had come back from captivity and it says this for Ezra set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to practice it and to teach his statutes and ordinances in Israel Ezra knew that his inner man was supposed to come into contact with God's word and so he did he set his heart to study it to practice it to teach it to others He knew it was supposed to be that way. Psalm 19, verse 7, uh, verse 8. Psalm 19, verse 8. We saw this last time in our homework. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. What does God intend? How does God want to bring joy to the believer's heart? Bring the word of God close to your heart and watch your heart rejoice. Psalm 119. Go there and we'll look at several verses in Psalm 119. Again, we get to look at Old Testament believers. 119 verse 11, you guys know this. Your word I have treasured in my heart. Why? So that I may not sin against you. The Old Testament believer knew that his heart was to treasure God's word. needed to be there. Verse 34. Give me understanding that I may observe your law and keep it with all my heart. Verse 36. Incline my heart to your testimonies. You guys know what an incline is, right? Imagine you put your, if you could, put you on one end of a board and put God's word down at the other and then you incline yourself to what? 
The word, that's what he's calling out to God. Incline my inner man to your word so that my inner man just falls for your word. I want it. God, do that in me. Verse 111. I have inherited your testimonies forever. They are the joy of my heart. I have inclined my heart to perform your statutes forever, even to the end. So here he is crying out to God to incline his heart, and then he inclines his own heart. He's in partnership with God to set his heart towards God's word. And there's great joy when our hearts are interacting with the word of God. Proverbs chapter 3, you can look at all three of those different ones. There. Proverbs 3, Proverbs 6, Proverbs 7. Bind them continually on your heart. I love Proverbs 7 in verse 3. It says, write them on the tablet of your heart. Guys, view your heart like a tablet, not like an electronic tablet. Like maybe more like a chalkboard, whiteboard, something like that where you actually need to write words on it, okay? Uh, write words from God on your heart. What is God's whole point in the New Covenant? I will write my law upon their heart. That should be a, a clue to us. Watch what God wants to do with his word and the inner man, and whatever it is, you do it. In Christ, you do it. If he wants his law, his words to come into contact with the human heart, you grab Christ's laws. You grab the instructions from the the apostles and you put it on your heart. Go to Luke chapter 8. I want you to see this. Jesus is the master of making this clear. Luke chapter 8, the parable of the different types of soil. Verse 12. Those beside the road are those who have heard. Then the devil, the devil, good for us to talk about this before we finish. The devil, he has an interest in what's going on with the heart and the word of God. Um, Those beside the road are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and he takes away the word from their heart. Why does he do that? He doesn't want them to believe. Does the devil know what God's plan is for the human heart? Is the devil watching what God thinks about his word? Is the devil watching about what God thinks about the heart? Is the devil aware of the plan to bring those two things together by God? Is he aware? Yes! Are you guys awake? You get this? My goodness! Verse 15, But the seed in the good soil... These are the ones who have heard the word in an honest and good heart. And the first question you should have, anybody should have had in listening to that was, how do I get that? How do I get that heart? And that's the whole point. The only kind of heart that can receive the word is one that has become good and honest. How does that happen? We know how that happens now. God is the one who makes it as such, right? Luke 24, at the end, his disciples are, as he's been resurrected, the disciples are walking down the the road to Emmaus. You remember that? They can't recognize him. You remember the conversation? And they're all bummed out about what happened. They can't connect the dots of what, he's dead, but then somebody said they saw that he's not there or that they saw him resurrected. And I don't know. They're just distraught. And he starts speaking to them. And he, he chides them for being slow of heart to believe all that the prophets wrote. See, that's the problem with the human heart. Even for his disciples, the heart is slow to believe the word of God. So we need to make sure that we're aware that the heart and the 
the word of God need to come together and that the heart is even slow to believe. And then he, they later, after Jesus sits down with them, they get bread and wine out and then all of a sudden they recognize him and he's gone. And one of them says, were not our hearts burning when he was explaining the scriptures to us? Do you remember that? They knew at the inner man level that they were burning because he was speaking the word of God to them. A few verses later, and I'm skipping over now because we just I want to make sure that we have enough time to just wrap this up. He opens their mind to understand the scriptures, uh, who they are inwardly. He opens their minds. Lastly, look at Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews 4. Verse 12. The word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow. And the word of God is able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Guys, the only way that you will ever be able to discern anything that is going on in your heart in this mixed condition that you are in is if you have the word of God alongside you. Your only chance of knowing what is going on there is to have the word of God. God gave you this word so that at your inner man level, you can know what's going on there, right? So what happens when you don't read your Bible for three weeks, three months? Are you happy about that? You should be terrified by that, even as a mixed creature, because you still have the deception of sin within you. It is not going to be a good day. (coughs) If someone takes you, drops you in the... I've never been to Niagara Falls. I have no idea if this is even... I I have no idea, so this may not even make sense. Go with me, though, okay? Somebody drops you in the river above the falls and says, Swim! And you start swimming, and you're able to keep from not going that way and you're able to make a little bit of progress upstream imagine you're able to do that what happens when you stop you can stay where you made progress you're gone you only go the other way that is what it's like to be a Christian the Christian life is a fight the Christian life is swimming upstream against the current of your own indwelling sin still if you do nothing with this inner man With the word of God, what is going to happen to you? What direction are you going to go? Are you going to go deeper into righteousness? No, you are not. You're going to be neglecting the only tool that God has given to you for your heart. You cannot do that. You must discipline yourself. You've got to work at this for the rest of your life. You'll never get it down perfectly. You'll never graduate from this. You get to work with a whole bunch of other schmucks like us and do it. This is what it means to be a a believing man of God. We're going to go after God's word together. We're going to bring it into full contact with our hearts. We're going to shepherd our hearts with the word of God so that we can know the God of the word, so that we can know what kind of new creature we are in Christ, so that we can understand who Jesus is, so that we can grow in our knowledge of him, so that we can worship him, so that we fear him, so that we obey him. We're going to, Lord willing, get all of that. Guys, if there's anything that I want overwhelming to you, you cannot neglect your inner man. You cannot neglect your inner man. And the way that you show that you do not neglect your inner man is you find this and you bring it to it every day. And we're not... Scott, thank you so much for emphasizing at the beginning that this is not... We're not... Look, we're talking about how to do a quiet time. 
we're talking about how to carry out a devotion. We are talking about that. That is not all we're talking about. All day long this needs to be going on and we'll talk more about that in the weeks to come about what that looks like, okay? Let me pray and if you guys have any questions you can ask, you can stay around, you can talk, we can do whatever. Um, but, I also remember uh, small group discussion leaders, we're going to have a, a short meeting afterwards so we can talk for a little bit and then we got to do that meeting, okay? Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for your Bible. Thank you for your word that reveals you and what you think and know and have found out the heart of a sinner to be. Thank you so much for uh, bringing us to our knees in the demand to make a new heart. Lord, we can't, we couldn't, we never would be able to. We lack desire, we lack concern, we lack power. We lack ability to be able to even do so. And so we come to the end of ourselves in that by your doing and we cry out to you to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. And Lord, we, as we look back upon um, your conversion of our lives, and Lord, if there's anybody here this morning who has not been converted yet, Lord, I pray that now would be the moment that, God, they would come to the end of themselves, they would turn away from themselves, they would ask you to do for them at the heart level what they have never been able yet to do for themselves. God, as we meditate on that and think on that, we love you. We worship you. We, we magnify your name. You are to be glorified. You are to be praised. You are to be lifted up. Your son's name is above every name that could ever be named. We humble ourselves in your presence and we rejoice to bring these words to our inner man because of your goodness and your kindness and your patience and your tolerance towards sinners like us. Father, make us now into men who are eager to bring our hearts into contact with your word so that we can know our hearts, so that we can know you. Lord, we need you desperately for that. Help us to not be overwhelmed by our inadequacy. Oh Lord, but help us to put our sights upon your son Jesus and depend upon him and call on him for strength to discipline our lives as we bring our thoughts, our emotions, our will, our attitudes, our relationships, our deeds, our desires to your word so that we can think rightly. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Guys, thank you so much. Remember, we do not meet in two weeks here, but the men's conference. And by the way, if, if, if finances on that is a, is a challenge for you, that it's, you're not just sure you're going to be able to afford something like that, would you please tell me? We'd love to help you with a scholarship. Um, work something out for you if, if that's helpful. Okay? We'd do that for you. We just want you to participate in that. Okay? Thanks, guys.